Hello, and welcome to the jury room. A couple of things before we get into today's guest feature. I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to you, the listeners. We're over 36,000 downloads, and I am elated to the moon. Without you guys, it wouldn't be possible. So I 100% thank you so much for downloading, for sharing, for just supporting the show. Thank you. Month after month, I'm seeing growth, new numbers. You guys are amazing. Today is happy podcast day. So I thought I would share an episode from a friend of mine, Stacy from the Oklahoma Side podcast. She made a guest appearance on the Sunday morning slasher part two aftermath episode. I just want to say thank you, Stacy, for coming on. Thanks for, you know, your insight. And thanks for the content that you put out. For all the listeners, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, and let me know what you think of the new episode, the new logo. So I've put out a new logo. I've been changing it on socials. I'm cha- going to be changing it on the podcast platform. Let me know what you think. It's something that I put a lot of great, a lot of time into, and I really think it turned out fantastic, but I want to know your opinion. Let me know, jerryroompodcast at gmail.com. Let me know in a comment section. I did have some stickers made also with this logo, so if it, that's something you're interested in, let me know. Fill out the form below, and I will definitely get some out to you. For those of you who have already gotten stickers, thank you so much for supporting the show. But I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Stacy, Zach, I hope you guys are listening. Thank you for the amazing work that you guys do. Have a great day, everybody. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. This is Oklahoma Side Slayings in the Sooner State. Episodes of this podcast contain graphic content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Oklahoma Side, Slayings in the Sooner State, Episode 13. My name is Dr. Stacy Hughes, and I'm here with my husband and co-host, Zachary. Hello. Firstly, thank you so much for listening to our show. It really means so much to us. If you'd like, you can also support the show at buymeacoffee.com slash Oklahomaside. We appreciate everyone's support. If you can't support the show financially, no problem. The best way to help us promote our show is to subscribe to Oklahoma Side on your favorite podcast platform, give us a five-star rating, and leave a short review. It should only take about 30 seconds, but it would mean so much. Remember, you can also follow Oklahoma Side on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Oklahoma Side Pod. 
I also co-hosted a three-part series over the 1977 Girl Scout murders in Oklahoma with Dr. Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime. Although I did cover this case in season one, my episodes with Dr. Jules provide more commentary and thoughts about the case. I will put the link to Riddle Me That in the show notes. If you'd like to purchase any merchandise, check out Zachary's Etsy shop, Bang Your Dead. If you can't find the shop, search Oklahoma side. It's the only thing that comes up. Also, don't forget to check out Zach's original horror fiction novel, The White Oak's Widow, on his other podcast, Dead Eyes and Moonlit Skies. You can follow him on Twitter at Dead Eyes Pod. I will have the links to Etsy, Dead Eyes, our social media, and our references for this show in the notes for this episode. Lastly, I just want to share a quick promo for one of my favorite new podcasts, The Path Went Chilly. It's co-hosted by Dr. Jules from Riddle Be That, Robin from The Trail Went Cold, and criminologist Dr. Ashley. Hi, I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold. If you are unfamiliar with my other podcast, I often cover stories from the television show Unsolved Mysteries. For the past five years, you've heard me talk about these cases on my own, but now's your chance to hear me have in-depth discussions about them with other people. I want to welcome you to my new project, The Path Went Chilly, where I will be discussing in-depth with my two good friends and co-hosts cases that I've covered on The Trail Went Cold. Meet my co-hosts. First one up is Jules. Hi, I'm Jules from the podcast Riddle Me That True Crime, and I have a PhD in transpersonal counseling. I'm not a psychologist or a diagnostician, so don't get too excited. But I can't wait to analyze these cases with these two amazing humans. You've already met Robin. Now meet Dr. Ashley Wellman. Hi, I'm Ashley. I have a PhD in criminology, law, and society, and I specialize in trauma victims and survivors. I've spent a great deal of time working with families left behind after homicides with a cold case unit based out of Florida, and I'm also a professor of criminology. I'm so excited to be chatting with two of my best friends about the cases that everyone can't seem to get enough of. We hope in doing so that we will have a clearer perspective of what may have transpired. Oftentimes, Ashley will be totally in the dark. Jules and I will be telling Ashley a story she may not know much about, so all of her reactions are genuine. We will be releasing on all major platforms April 8th. We hope you will join us as we attempt to heat up some ice-cold cases. The Pathwind Chili will be available every Thursday on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, I want to give a special thank you to Brittany's mother, Dr. Maggie Zingman, for discussing the case with Stacy and answering some of the questions we had. We'd also like to thank Lindsay Schrod from the Chrysalis Chapters. We first learned about Brittany's case from her website and the piece she wrote. If you've never visited her website, please do. Now let's get started with today's case. This is the story of Brittany Phillips. On September 30th, 2004 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, officers received a call from a college student who said she was worried about her friend, Brittany Phillips, who hadn't been to class in days. The police went to conduct a welfare check on Brittany, but what they found was a scene from a nightmare. Officers found the raped and strangled body of Brittany Phillips lying on the floor beside her bed in her second-story apartment. She had been dead for three days. Brittany Ivana Sarah Phillips was born on October 4th, 1985, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Her mother, Dr. Maggie Zingman, raised Brittany and her oldest brother, Josh, essentially as a single parent, moving them from Florida to Kentucky. Then, in 1991, Dr. Zingman moved with her two small children to Oklahoma, which became the family's home. Since Josh was only 15 months older than Brittany, the two were relatively close. 
There was definitely sibling rivalry, but the two always had each other's backs. Brittany attended Union High School in Tulsa. She was incredibly smart and excelled in school, earning a full-ride chemistry scholarship to Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, the same college her mother attended. While Brittany had loved acting and dancing since childhood, she planned to devote her life to cancer research. To cancer research. Following the death of her grandmother due to cancer, Brittany had decided to dedicate her life to chemistry. Despite her accolades, Brittany did not give herself enough credit for her intelligence. Instead, she insisted she was only able to achieve the full ride scholarship because of study habits, not intelligence. While Brittany was a star academically, she wasn't considered popular in high school. She was, however, considered to be incredibly friendly to everyone. A former classmate of Brittany said, quote, while Brittany Phillips wasn't a close friend of mine, I did know her throughout high school and she was a really nice girl. We all knew someone like her in high school, the type that you didn't know well, but who always knew who you were and would acknowledge you in the halls. Brittany graduated from Union High School in May of 2003 at the age of 17. Later that summer in August of 2003, Brittany set off for St. Petersburg, Florida to Eckerd College. In May of 2004, approaching the end of her freshman year of college, Brittany decided to pack up her belongings and move back to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Brittany only stayed at the college for one year because of the extreme homesickness she was experiencing. She decided to withdraw from Eckerd and move home to attend Tulsa Community College. Her mother lived about two hours away in Chandler, Oklahoma, where she worked as a counselor for a female correctional facility. But Brittany still had several friends and family members in the Tulsa area, including her brother, Josh, with whom she would become incredibly close with over the next couple of months. Maggie and Josh were both excited to have Brittany back in Oklahoma. Maggie often worried about Brittany because she was about a year younger than her classmates, looked extremely youthful, and was incredibly trusting. Brittany was able to find an apartment in Tulsa at Glen Eagles. These apartments housed many young college students in Tulsa, as well as young working couples and families. Brittany was excited to find this apartment because it was so close to Union High School where she graduated, so she was already very familiar with the area in which she would be living. Brittany was enrolled in 16 hours for the fall semester and worked as a waitress at Applebee's. She had a close group of female friends who would take turns hosting study nights. Brittany was beautiful, earning the nickname Pretty Britty. She was incredibly kind and thoughtful, too. Each weekend, Brittany drove the two-hour trip to visit her mother in Chandler, Oklahoma. Brittany truly was beautiful inside and out. So I actually can relate to Brittany. I went to, I mean, I didn't move to Florida, but I did go to Ada for my freshman year of college at East Central, but I was only 17 as well. And after one semester, I moved home and attended a community college closer to my family too, because it's hard being out on your own at 17 or 18. And I was only an hour away. She was in a completely different state. So I imagine that was really hard. Yeah, and it also seems like her youthful looks and the things that made her mother worry about her end up being part of the thing that ends up getting her in trouble in the end. Yeah, absolutely. According to Lindsay Sherrod, author of the Chrysalis Chapters, Brittany's mother, Maggie, recalls the morning the news was broken to her as if it was a scene from one of the plays she and her daughter enjoyed partaking in together years before, a scenario she'd undoubtedly recited many times for news reporters, family, and friends. According to Sherrod, Maggie last spoke with her daughter the evening of Monday, September 27, 2004, around 9 o'clock p.m. Maggie explained to Sherrod that Brittany suffered from terrible allergies and had tried to get into a clinic, but was unable to do so. Brittany had called her mother, who agreed to call and get an appointment scheduled for Brittany that Friday. 
Brittany thanked her mother, informed her she would drop off her friend who had accompanied her to the clinic, and then go back to her apartment to go to sleep. Their phone call ended with the words, I love you. That was the last time Maggie ever heard Brittany's voice. After getting off the phone with her mother, Brittany went to pick up her friend for a class at Tulsa Community College South Campus and ran into her brother Joshua. They had a brief conversation. At approximately 9.45, Brittany dropped her friend off and drove the short distance to her apartment. On September 28th, the next morning, Brittany didn't show up for her classes. Her friends noted this was unusual because Brittany was such a great student. They assumed she must be unwell because of her allergies. Maggie tried to call Brittany and left a message. It was never returned. On September 29th, Brittany missed classes again, making her friends and classmates even more worried for her. Maggie tried again and left another message for Brittany. It was never returned. Maggie convinced herself that Brittany was just busy with her workload at school. Maggie then left another message for Brittany, telling her to call back immediately because she was getting very worried. Brittany's friend decided to check on Brittany herself. The friend's father was a district attorney with previous experience as an officer. As she headed towards Brittany's apartment, she called her father and explained the situation. Her friend reached Brittany's front door and knocked but received no response. She tried the door handle. It was unlocked to her surprise. She pushed it open a crack, but her dad, who was on the phone, told her not to go inside and instead he sent an officer to do a welfare check on Brittany. As a true crime fan, I just have to think about her friend, how intelligent she must have been or how much experience she had because of her dad's background. Because had she gone in there, she could have really disrupted the crime scene. So that was, I mean, that's something you hear a lot of, you know, evidence being lost because the crime scene wasn't secured or anything like that. But this friend of Brittany's had the wherewithal to let her dad know She knew her dad would know what to do. And because of that, she did not disrupt the crime scene. Yeah, I was just thinking how lucky she was that she had called her father and that her father had the experience that he did. Oh, yeah. And on top of like not disturbing the crime scene, Brittany's a sophomore in college. So this person is probably a freshman or sophomore as well. Just think of the emotional trauma she would have experienced had she been the one who had found Brittany raped and strangled after three days, too. Yeah. At the time of her murder, Brittany was living alone in her apartment on 65th Street. Her apartment had multiple points of possible entry. There were eight apartments, including Brittany's, that shared an attic, giving all residents access to each other's apartments. In Brittany's apartment, the window screens were removed, although investigators aren't sure whether Brittany herself removed those screens or if they were removed by her murderer. Brittany also had a balcony that the perpetrator could have climbed up to get into her apartment. Just before 10 p.m. on September 30th, police entered Brittany's apartment and discovered Brittany's body on the floor facing away from the head of the bed. There had clearly been a struggle. The police believed that Brittany put up such a fight that the perpetrator had to slam her into the wall at one point. There were marks on her neck. She was wearing a sleeveless top and underwear. However, police believe she may have been redressed into this outfit. Police first worked to determine how the killer entered Brittany's apartment. As police searched, they found a small door inside of Brittany's closet. That was the door that led to the shared attic space. Anyone could have entered her home from the other seven apartments that shared that same space with Brittany. These apartments with shared attic space, that sounds pretty scary. Yeah, especially in like an inner city area like Tulsa, where crime is just more rampant. 
that would be very terrifying. Although they do not know to this day, this is an unsolved case. So they're still not sure who the perpetrator is. And so they're not sure how he got into the apartment either. But it sounds like it may not have been very difficult. No, yeah. Between the balcony and the attic in particular, I mean, it could have been any of her neighbors, which I'm sure they were all questioned extensively, but it could have been any of their neighbor's friends or just anyone who knew that those apartments shared an attic space. You know, it it just opens the door for so many possibilities of who the perpetrator could have been. I mean, it could have just been somebody who saw her at the clinic and followed her from there. Yeah, it could be something as simple as that. On Friday, October 1st, 2004, at nearly 1 o'clock a.m., Maggie heard a knock at her door. She opened the door and saw a police officer standing there in the rain. After confirming she was Maggie Zingman, the police officer said to her, You need to call the Tulsa police. Your daughter's been murdered. In an interview with Lindsay Schrod, Maggie said, For the first half hour, I didn't know what to do. I was in total shock. It had to be the wrong person. As a parent, you always think, this could never happen to me. After Maggie processed what was happening, she started calling her family and friends. Maggie then headed towards Brittany's apartment in Tulsa, Oklahoma. When Maggie arrived at her daughter's apartment, her body had already been removed by the medical examiner. The ME would reveal that Brittany had been sexually assaulted and that her cause of death was asphyxiation. Brittany's time of death was estimated to have been sometime between 9 p.m. on September 27th and 8 a.m. on September 28th. According to reports, the forensic team collected over 70 swabs of potential DNA. A semen sample was found on the bed. Blood was also found in Brittany's apartment that matched the DNA from the semen. Police were sure the semen and blood belonged to Brittany's killer. Police believe that Brittany's murderer either broke in through her balcony porch doors, windows, or the attic. It's possible that the perpetrator was there when Brittany was gone, waiting for her. It's also possible that the perpetrator entered the apartment after Brittany was settled in for bed. Brittany had laid dead for three days. She was laid to rest on October 4th, 2004, her 19th birthday. That's just so sad that they had to bury her on her birthday. Yeah, that's really tragic. Six months later, investigators had a DNA profile. So remember, the DNA from the blood and the semen match. So Mm -hmm. you obviously think this person has to be the killer, right? So just keep that in mind as we finish the story. Despite having this profile, the police would test thousands of local suspects' DNA, along with millions of suspects in CODIS. So CODIS is a national database of DNA profiles of people who have committed crimes. Despite their limitations, investigators did have a break in the case. Parabon Snapshot, a company who, quote, developed the Snapshot Forensic DNA Phenotyping System, which accurately predicts genetic ancestry, eye color, hair color, skin color, freckling, and face shape in individuals from any ethnic background, even individuals with mixed ancestry, released a composite image they constructed using the DNA found at the crime scene in Brittany's case. Based on DNA, the phenotype composite of Brittany's murderer is a white male, likely with blue or green eyes and light brown or blonde hair. He is of Northern European descent and likely has freckles. The composite was of someone who appeared in their 20s. However, the age of the perpetrator in 2004 or now is unknown. Still, this break led to 40 plus new tips. And although Maggie didn't know the person in the picture, she did express to Lindsay Schraub, 
at the chrysalis chapters that the image did look like someone Brittany would have been attracted to. So at this point, they have a DNA profile. They assume this person has to be the killer. And I will post the picture on social media. But when Maggie sees the image of what they believe the perpetrator might look like, she was like, that definitely looks like somebody Brittany would have possibly been interested in, again, just based on this composite. Still, after two years of no leads, no national media attention, Maggie came up with a plan to help catch her daughter's killer and help other victims' families throughout the United States on her caravan to catch a killer tours. Dr. Maggie Zingman has traveled to 48 states, covered more than 250,000 miles, and hosted 20 tours in search for justice. Brittany was killed in 2004. In 2018, so for 14 years, they have been looking for this person who matches this DNA of the blood and the semen. But in January 2018, police released the DNA snapshot and the sketch brought in a plethora of tips that actually led police to find the man that the DNA belonged to. However, they actually ended up ruling this man out as a suspect. Now that the DNA they thought for sure matched their killer was irrelevant, investigators were back to square one and still searching for DNA from the actual perpetrator. I couldn't wrap my mind around how they could rule someone out so easily over a decade later. I was so fortunate to be able to ask Dr. Zeman a few questions about the case. I asked her specifically about how she felt about the investigation and about ruling this person out as a person of interest. She responded, quote, I was totally satisfied with the first detective. He was unbelievable. He let me into the case more than anybody else. And I don't blame him for following that DNA with the blood and semen for as many years as he did. Because with two sources from the same person, we believed that had to be the killer. Currently, the cold case detective is the only detective on Brittany's case. The rumors are he did not do a good job in the investigation of that person of interest with the DNA, and that's why he lied that there was an airtight alibi. He also refuses to let any outside cold case investigators come into the case. And so a lot of times with cold cases, the key to success or finding justice is really to have new eyes look at it. Sometimes previous investigators can be so focused on one thing or the other, they're missing something. Dr. Zingman seems very frustrated with the current status or the current cold case investigator. He just doesn't seem to want any help, but she believes that it might be due to some poor work on his part. She said that there are rumors that he is saying stuff to the new chief about Dr. Zingman that is causing the new chief to totally block out communication with her. The old chief, Jordan, was unbelievable and always met with Dr. Zingman. She said, I have a lot of ideas about how listeners can help people with similar tragedies, and part of it is just being there. But the one thing I always tell people for me, and probably true about many other cold cases, is one of the things we need the most is other people, not just ourselves, going to the media. Because sometimes the only person promoting the story to national news is the murder victim's family. The media doesn't want to help with cold cases, typically. They focus on what is important for their audience in the moment. I also asked Dr. Zingman how our listeners can help. She said, quote, there's no wrong way to offer help, but I have found that many times people are uncomfortable and that can cause them to say things that can really upset some homicide families, even though it's not meant that way. For example, these are some things that she heard after Brittany's murder. Oh, God doesn't put us through something we can't handle or she's in a better place. 
Dr. Zingman says, I know that it's just somebody trying to deal with their own fear of having to ever deal with a murder personally. But in my teachings to homicide groups or detectives, I talk about how this dynamic can unintentionally rub victim families the wrong way. And I definitely can relate to her. I hate when people say stuff like that in any context. I understand how that can be frustrating. When my brother and sister-in-law lost a baby at, I think it was six months or so, I remember going to visit my sister-in-law and I specifically told her, grieve how you need to grieve, cry, shut people, like do what you need to do because all she was hearing is everything's going to be okay, Uh, everything happens for a reason, things like that. And she's like, no, I just lost my daughter. Don't tell me this happened for a reason. And I, I can totally relate to that frustration. So why exactly was the original owner of this DNA given an alibi? I asked Dr. Zingman this and she, cause I was like, it's been 14 years. How did they confidently rule his alibi airtight? And she told me that is essentially inaccurate information that is being presented and that she that the had- alibi is inaccurate? that the investigator made a possible alibi more airtight because of his own errors in his investigation. And so she believes he has made some mistakes. And because of that, he had to rule this person out to kind of cover himself. And that maybe it's not his DNA. It's for sure his DNA. Um, I think they're trying to say that maybe it was like a consensual relationship or something like that. Because obviously if his semen is there, he was there, you know, that doesn't doesn't just appear. Dr. Zingman didn't seem confident that he wasn't the perpetrator. She didn't tell me his name or anything like that. I'm sure it's protected for various reasons. It doesn't seem like he actually had an airtight alibi, which is one of the frustrating things about this case, because there's not a lot of accurate information out there about this person. Hmm. I've heard a lot of stories, true crime stories, and I've seen people convicted on a lot less than blood and semen being found at the scene. So that really surprised me, really surprised me. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Now, isn't she owed essentially the answer to- Uh, Detectives, because her case is not solved, even though it's classified as a cold case, detectives can be very selective about what they share with families or the media, because what they don't want is information. They'll never release all the information because they need to keep some information secret that only the killer would know. That's one of the ways they rule out false confessions and things like that. Is this person telling us only things that we've heard in the media and they've gleaned their story from that? Or does this person know information that we haven't shared? That's the person who we really need to look at. So we don't know anything about the owner of this DNA. Other than the image that was created by that DNA company, we can assume he looks like that. But like you said earlier, that's an assumption. It's Well, it's based on his DNA, but it's a pretty generic. So this is what he could look like, or he'll look similar to this, but it's not going to be an exact portrait. So there's no pictures of this person to protect their identity. I'm sure it's protected because he was ruled out as a suspect, even if it wasn't accurate. Because, I mean, if the investigator did it, no one's going to like question him, you know, as far as like ruling somebody out. That's really disturbing because you have to think, you know, if it was somebody you knew or if it was our daughter or something like that, I feel like I would never rest until I understood who this person was and where this person claims to have been and how their DNA got there. Yeah. And think about this, too. Like she said, Dr. Zeman told me that she feels like this new cold case investigator who is overseeing Brittany's case is even kind of bad-mouthing her to their chief. And because of that, 
the chief has even stopped kind of responding to Dr. Zingman's inquiries in her phone calls and things like that. And so they're starting to treat her almost like a nuisance, as opposed to this mother whose daughter was brutally murdered and just simply wants justice. And I imagine that as a mother, there could not be anything more frustrating than trying to get justice for your daughter and even people who are supposed to be helping you, shutting you out. I would feel so helpless. Yeah, that's that's really hard to believe. Yeah. You know, I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Zingman, so it makes it feel more real because I can put like this family with this story. But I've honestly heard so many situations, uh, cold cases in particular, of police departments kind of shutting families out after a certain amount of time. And I, I get, you know, we everyone who's ever had a job knows it can be frustrating to constantly hear the same thing over and over or whatever. But this is a different job. Your job is to find justice for this woman's daughter. I can't imagine any justifiable reason to stop communicating with her or kind of shut her out, especially when Dr. Zeman has literally devoted the last two decades nearly to searching for justice or to helping others who are in similar situations. I mean, she is literally traveling all over the country. Obviously, she said that she's kind of had to take a break because of COVID and everything, but she's vaccinated and ready to go again. And so I just, I find her story and her determination really inspiring. And we hear this with a lot of murder victims, families. For example, the three girls who were killed at Camp Scott in 1977 at the Girl Scout murders, a lot of their parents ended up starting organizations or various nonprofits that were geared towards fighting for justice or geared towards helping victim families and things like that. And so a lot of people do dedicate their lives after they've lost a child to a violent crime. But it's still, it, it doesn't make it any less inspiring. Brittany's murder completely altered the rest of her life. She's never been able to have any type of peace because the person who killed Brittany is still out there. I mean, the person who killed Brittany could still be walking the streets in Tulsa. Yeah. If you have any information, call Tulsa Homicide Hotline at 918-798-8477. You can also call 918-596-COPS with any tips. The current lead detective is Eddie Majors. You can email him at emajors at cityoftulsa.org with any information regarding Brittany's case. Again, DNA has been tested on over 3,000 persons of interest. And since the person who matches the DNA has this alibi, here are some other possibilities in regards to the killer's profile. He may often be someone who is up and or out alone at night. B, may have sexual problems. He could be the type who denies he has any problems and focuses on them with anger. I've heard this a lot in sexual assault cases, especially ones that maybe end in violence in some capacity. Sometimes perpetrators who have sexual issues might not be able to perform and things like that. And as a result, instead of dealing with their own issues or whatever, they blame the victim for their inability to perform and take it out on that victim. This person may be into high-risk behaviors that are dangerous or cause pain for himself or others, and may also be into hurting during sex or snuff films. He may be someone who is always angry, often interpreting someone as being against him, putting him down, acting better than him. He may be like this always or suddenly explode. He may have been arrested for rape, he may have a charge such as endangering or outrageous public indecency. When he returned, he may have begun to act very different, anxious, angry, depressed, 
started using drugs or alcohol, or increased use of drugs and alcohol. He may have been outgoing, but if it was accidental, changed to isolating himself. By 10 years, someone who accidentally killed her would probably be eaten up with guilt. He may have attempted to hurt or kill himself from the guilt, or he may have already committed suicide. He may drive I-35, I-44, or I-40 because of work or has friends in Oklahoma or surrounding states that he must go through Oklahoma. He could also have a public service job, like a bill pay, cell phones, etc., where he accesses customers' addresses, or it could be someone in utilities that has access to addresses. Please, even if you think it can't be our killer, even if it seems like a small thing, call the tip lines. So again, these descriptions or these profiles were compiled from the investigation, but Brittany's mom, Maggie, has a website, which I'll post in the show notes, and it has all this information available. And you can also see what Maggie is currently working on in regards to her tours and everything like that. Do you have any final thoughts? No, it just seems like a very frustrating case. Uh, Yeah. All questions and no answers, but it seems like there is an answer that is just being avoided like it's an elephant in the room. Yeah, I just wish that, like, if if this person is innocent, maybe it was consensual or whatever, but, like, release that information, especially at least to the family. Let them know more details. I mean, if it's a consensual relationship, why would there also be blood? That is very true. I don't know. I mean, that yeah, doesn't, that doesn't make, make any sense. sense. And if somebody just said, oh, well, you know, here here's the match to this DNA, but this person has an alibi, I just can't see not demanding to know what this alibi is, but I guess they don't have, you don't have a right to know. I, I just, yeah. When I taught, when I asked Dr. Zingman about that, she did not know the alibi, but like I said, she believes that the alibi was not as airtight as they said, and that it was more of covering up some bad decision-making or investigation. I mean, the, the fact that maybe somebody would let a killer of this young girl slip through to save face. Yeah on a botched investigation is outrageous. Yeah, I agree. And, I, you know, I keep thinking, okay, they they got a hold of him 14 years after the murder. How do you even remember? Like, if, if you're that person, how do you remember what you were doing 14 years ago on that night? Like, I would never be able to do that. Yeah, and nothing you can say is going to measure up to the fact that your physical evidence was found at the crime scene and nothing else. Yeah, and I didn't even think about the fact, like, I just read, like, blood and semen. I didn't really even think about the fact that why would there have been blood there if it was consensual? But absolutely, I, that does not make any sense to me. And I now that you've brought that up, I would really even more so like to know the story there and how they so quickly ruled this person out after they finally found them. I mean, they were looking for this person for 14 years. So again, if this person was innocent as well, even if it was a consensual, whatever, we'll ignore the blood for a second. Say he was with Brittany that day or even a day before or something, and she still had semen. Would he not want to contact the police and let them know? It seems kind of sketchy that somebody who was in that situation would not have contacted the police and said, listen, you're going to find my DNA possibly, and here's why. Two nights ago, we went on a date or, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just... Yeah, that's the first thing you want to do for 14 years. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And if she had was in a relationship with somebody, he would have been the first one of the first people that they would have targeted. Somebody would have known that she was talking to somebody or had a friend or had met someone. She had a close group of girlfriends. Surely, even if she had a maybe she wasn't in a relationship, but she was just interested in someone. 
or anything, surely. I mean, they would know even if she had a casual date. Exactly. Exactly. I think you're right. I think that I wouldn't, if I was Dr. Zingman, and so I understand her frustration uh, as much as I can. Obviously, I will never be able to fully understand, but the frustration she must feel with that particular situation, I can't even imagine. I'm frustrated for her, and I'm just working it out in my head right now. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Oklahoma Side Slangs in the Sooner State. Remember, it can happen anywhere to anyone. Stay safe, protect yourself and your loved ones. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review. It would mean so much to me and Zach. Also, don't forget to check out Zach's other podcasts, Dead Eyes and Moonlit Skies. Before we leave you today, we want to take a minute to introduce you to a dog up for adoption in Tulsa. In honor of Brittany and the life she lived, we want to highlight a dog up for adoption in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Today's dog up for adoption is named Whiskey. His ID number is A138850 at the City of Tulsa Animal Welfare. Whiskey is a neutered male, white and brown Dalmatian mix. The shelter staff thinks he's about a year and four months old. He has been at the shelter since March 8, 2021. Whiskey's adoption fee is only $10. If you have any questions at all, please contact the City of Tulsa Animal Welfare at 918-596-8000. If you're able, please consider adopting Whiskey or any of the other pets up for adoption at the City of Tulsa's Animal Welfare. A little kindness can go a long way. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.